It's 11 minutes before the hour. You're listening to Raven Radio KCAW in Sitka. Today is Friday, December 22nd, 2023. I'm Andrew Hames. This is Raven News. A Washington man has pleaded guilty to misrepresentation of Indian produced goods and products. The charge stems from his involvement in a larger conspiracy to sell fake Alaska Native art in Ketchikan. KRBD's Jack Darrell has the story. Jesse Halili Reginio was charged with violating the Federal Indian Arts and Crafts Act by passing off stone carvings and wood totem poles as traditional art made by local Klingit and Haida artisans. They were actually made in the Philippines. The products were sold out of two storefronts in Ketchikan, Alaska Stone Art and Rail Creek. The stores were owned and operated by Cristobal Rodrigo and his family members. Reginio was an employee of the family stores and received commissions on the Philippine products they sold. His plea agreement lists his involvement beginning in 2019. Reginio portrayed himself as an Alaska native carver named Sonny. In May of 2019, Reginio received commission on a stone-carved bear with a fish in its mouth, which sold for almost $1,500. In July of that year, he sold a stone eagle for almost $6,500. Then, a month before his involvement with the scheme allegedly ended, he sold a Philippine-made humpback whale to an undercover law enforcement agent. The whale was signed with a false name, Kilit. Federal authorities say that Reginio would lie to customers that he learned to carve by watching his brother and his uncle Kilit, both Klingit master carvers. In a later conversation with a customer, he misrepresented his employer, Cristobal Rodrigo, as his non-existent uncle Kilit. Rodrigo was sentenced to two years in prison for his part in the crime in August of this year. It's currently the longest sentence ever given for an Indian Arts and Crafts Act violation in the United States. In a statement at the time, Alaska District Attorney S. Lane Tucker said that Rodrigo's monumental sentence was a testament to the Fed's dedication to protecting indigenous cultural heritage and that the family's actions were a cultural affront to Alaska Native artisans. In Ketchikan, I'm Jack Darrell. In the last eight days, the Division of Public Assistance has processed more than 2,000 food stamp application cases in an effort to clear a backlog that has kept thousands of Alaskans waiting more than a month for benefits. Earlier this month, food aid was delayed by more than a month for more than 12,000 Alaskans. Now, the Alaska Beacon reports that that number is down to just over 10,000. Division Director Deb Etheridge said her employees are on track to clear the backlog in 90 days, as Health Commissioner Heidi Hegberg said in a news conference last week. Our staff are really meeting and exceeding the goal, Etheridge said. They've really sort of buckled in and are doing the work. She said their progress may slow over the holidays. The division will not offer overtime hours on Christmas Day. Etheridge said after the Christmas holiday, she will reevaluate and see whether or not the division will offer overtime hours on the New Year holiday. She said the agency is on track to launch its online application by December 31st. The online tool is intended to speed processing time for applications because it will reduce paperwork for the DPA and help Alaskans file complete applications. The division is hiring and has two dozen jobs in the process of being filled, anywhere from interviews to background checks. Etheridge said there are nine vacancies for eligibility technicians, the DPA employees that process food aid applications. Governor Mike Dunleavy's proposed budget includes $8.8 million to hire 30 eligibility technicians. Etheridge said she will be ready to post those positions as soon as the legislature passes the budget. (music) 
Petersburg's Borough Assembly voted unanimously to support a new bill that would tighten residency requirements for hunting, trapping, and sport fishing. Assembly member Scott Newman called on the Assembly to write a letter in support of the bill. He says he wants to make sure those who are harvesting with resident licenses really live in Alaska. People can leave the state and still claim residency and still can come back and enjoy the benefits of being a resident of Alaska, even if they're gone for an undetermined amount of time. So it's my opinion, this system, you know, the system has been abused. House Bill 201 would align the requirements for a resident hunting, trapping, or sport fishing license with the requirements to receive a permanent fund dividend, or PFD. That would limit the amount of time a person can be absent from Alaska and still qualify for a state license. People's primary residence must be in the state of Alaska to qualify for both the PFD and resident harvesting licenses. The PFD requires residents to physically be in the state for at least 180 days of each year. There is no minimum yearly requirement for a resident hunting, trapping, or fishing license in Alaska. House District 2 Representative Rebecca Hemshute sponsored the bill. She says that she's heard stories from her constituents of people abusing the resident licenses. They come in with this freezer. They fill it with fish and game resources from the local areas that they harvest. Um, And then they run that freezer on propane and they take it back south with them. Resident licenses are cheaper than out-of-state permits. They also have higher bag limits, meaning residents can harvest a lot more game and fish. Hemshute says that the beauty of the bill is that while it sets a higher standard for residency, it doesn't make more work for law enforcement. The goal of this is to decrease bureaucracy, if at all possible, and it might be a wash. It may not. She says the bill is meant to increase efficiency by creating a single proof of residency through eligibility for the PFD. Primary residency for licenses is currently assessed on a case-by-case basis, looking at things such as plane tickets and evidence of residency in other states. Landslides are almost impossible to forecast precisely, but scientists say more data could help. Southeast Alaska mostly lacks the kind of monitoring that could make people safer. But at the site of last month's deadly Wrangell slide, it starts with the installation of new weather stations and a survey of the island's elevation. KTOO's Anna Canny reports. The Wrangell landslide happened in an instant. Somewhere high on a slope above Zamovia Highway, the earth shifted, and that triggered a river of mud that fanned out and ran down the hill for nearly 4,000 feet, crossing the beach and spilling into the ocean. People living on the hillside had little warning, just the sound of the slide coming their way. It buried two houses, leaving five people dead and one still missing. According to state geologist Barrett Salisbury with the Alaska Department of Natural Resources, it's extremely challenging to detect disasters like this before they happen. We're always going to be surprised by a landslide event. We could give you an estimate of where we think the hotspots for future activity could be, would be, but there's no guarantee and it's pretty unlikely that we would get all those spot on. One thing is guaranteed. Across the steep mountain slopes of southeast Alaska, those hotspots are everywhere. And human-caused climate change could trigger even more slides in the future. Landslides are incredibly complex. Each one is shaped by the unique geology, hydrology, and vegetation on a given slope. That's the biggest reason why they're so hard to predict. But scientists like state geologist Gabriel Wolken say that Southeast also severely lacks the kinds of monitoring that could make people safer. We have you know, this broad understanding of the different ingredients that come into play to aid the development of a landslide, but we still lack data 
The ingredients are the basic when and where of slides. The when is most often shaped by heavy rain. All the deadly slides over the last decade in Wrangell, Haynes, and Sitka all happened during strong rainstorms. On steep terrain, the earth is always resisting the pull of gravity. If there's enough rainfall all at once, the soil can become saturated, and the solid earth transforms into a heavy slurry of water, mud, and other debris. Trees, shrubs, homes, cars, anything in the way becomes a part of this debris flow. It's incredibly difficult to figure out a threshold where there's enough rain to create landslide conditions, and the scarcity of weather stations makes it impossible. For most Southeast communities, the most complete and official weather data is collected at airports, which are on flat ground close to sea level. But the mix of ocean and steep mountains in the region causes weather to behave very differently across even small distances. There could have been a cloud literally was denser 10 miles away from town and it rained more or high winds were focused because of the shape of the mountains and the channels there to trigger that landslide, but we don't know. To remedy this problem, the Alaska Department of Transportation will install two new weather stations in Wrangell, one at the base of the slope and one near the ridge. That data may help scientists narrow down the when, at least. The where is much harder, but Walken says history is a good rule of thumb. There is this repetition on the landscape where one landslide has occurred in the past. There is then the possibility that landslides tend to occur in the same places. Residents across Wrangell Island have stories of smaller slides that have left piles of dirt in their own backyards. More overgrown slide scars can be spotted from planes or boats. And the November slide created new hotspots, including several smaller slides that broke off from the main path and stopped just short of houses. All of those paths are prone to slide again. Aerial surveys of Wrangell Island from before and after the November storm will be used to build models of the island's elevation. Scientists can use those models to find potentially unstable slopes. Wilkin says that's a good starting place. And working to collect more data on landslide conditions is especially important as warming driven by the burning of fossil fuels makes southeast even more slide prone. Particularly with increases in heavy rain, snowfall, and rapid temperature changes, and in particular intense precipitation as we've seen be linked to some of these landslides. Scientists will never be able to pinpoint the next disaster. But after the deadly 2015 slide in Sitka, researchers started to develop a risk-based warning system founded in large part on rainfall data and records of past slides. Many Southeast communities, like Wrangell, are looking to that as an example of how they could monitor their slopes in the future. The effort to collect more data is just a small step in that direction. In Juneau, I'm Anna Canny. I'm Andrew Hames, and this has been Raven News. Thank you.